0: I don't know if you've ever thought about uh, how many words you hear uh, in a day or in a week or in a lifetime. Our our life is just filled with words from the very, even before we're out of the womb, our life is filled with words. And a few estimates that I saw online uh, say that we hear around 30,000 words a day, and so if you times that by 12, uh, or by, yeah, by 365. That's about a million words, 11 million words a year. And if you live to be 70 years old, uh, it's 766 million words in a lifetime. And or maybe you're married to someone or have kids that talk a lot more, so maybe that would go up. Uh, But uh, where do all these words come from? If we think about everything that speaks to us or everything that has words in our life, you know, we listen to the radio or we listen to. Um, music online, or we're reading websites, or reading the news, or listening to the news online, or we have family and friends and coworkers and neighbors, and the person checking you out at the grocery store, or the person you called for tech support, or your doctor, you call to make an appointment, and then you talk to someone on the phone, and then you hear words um, from your doctor, and uh, movies, and TV, and podcasts, radio, music, all these things are words that we hear, and we're listening all the time. Uh, an article on the University of Missouri's website said, Uh, Listening is the communication skill most of us use the most frequently. Various studies stress the importance of listening as a communication skill. A typical study points out that many of us spend 70-80% to of our waking hours in some form of communication. Of that time, we spend about 9% writing, 16% reading, 30% speaking, and 45% listening. Studies also confirm that most of us are poor and inefficient listeners. And so, 45% of our time in communication is spent listening, and yet we're not that good of listeners a lot of times. And uh, then you may wonder, well, how many words? I'm hearing all these words a day, you know, 30,000 words. How many am I absorbing? One claim is that we remember between 17 and 25% of what we hear. And so, we hear a lot. But we don't absorb a lot, and we often don't listen well to what we're hearing. And so think about yourself. What did you hear this week? As you were going throughout the week, um, or maybe even today, what did you hear? What words did you hear? What, who and who were you listening to? And which of those words stuck with you throughout this week? Is there anything from this past week If I was like, hey, what did you hear this week? Could you repeat back something? Um, and if you could repeat it back, where did that come from? What, what was in, How did those words... Uh, influence you? Whose words are having influence? And there's words that, you know, if you think about our whole life, there's words that go one, in one ear and out the other that we don't remember it at all the next day or the next year or ten years down the, uh, down the road. But there's words that you've heard that have stuck with you for days, weeks, months, Maybe even years. There's things that I can, you know, remember, you know, like an inconsequential conversation that I can remember, you know, with people in high school or things my dad said or things my mom said. We can like remember these words for years or lyrics to a song. So Katie and I were, we were, you know, in the south on this vacation, so we were like looking for a radio station. You find country radio stations a lot, and I haven't listened to country, I don't know, maybe a decade or more. And as like song came on, I could sing to the words. You know, those words have stuck in my head. And there's some words we remember because they've cut us deep and they've left a wound or a scar there. And we remember that person said that and this is how it affects me negatively. And there's also words that maybe give us hope or comfort or encouragement to, or, or express understanding to us. And you cherish those words for years or decades uh, uh, down the road. And these, the words we hear shape who we are and what we think. Katie, I don't know, two weeks ago or so, has... It was like a, a post she saw on Instagram and saw it a couple times where somebody said uh, the, something like, isn't it the, your voice to your child becomes their inner voice later in life. That, that's how it's said. So like our words that we speak to our children becomes their inner voice later on, whatever tone or however we're speaking to them. In the passage we're looking at today, the gospel, the gospel according to Luke, Jesus is talking about his words and God's words and how people are responding to it. And since chapter four, Jesus has been uh, announcing and inaugurating. He's been proclaiming and bringing God, the good news of the kingdom of God. And then in chapter seven, um, last week that you saw the last two, last three weeks, chapter seven, people are wrestling with who Jesus is. And some people are seeing him very clearly, and for other people, uh, it's still blurry. They're still not like, getting the whole picture. And some people it's like he's starting to come into focus, but then for others it's not in focus at all. But then some, others are seeing he is the Lord, and they're worshiping him and bowing down before him in that way. And right before chapter 7, Jesus preached a sermon in uh, chapter 6, where he challenged people to build their life on his words. And now in chapter 8, on each side of chapter 7, where people are wrestling with who Jesus is, end of chapter 6, build your life on my words. And now in chapter 8, he starts talking about how people are responding to his words. And so on either side of that, it's like, okay, who is Jesus? How are we responding to him? What are we doing with his words? And this teaching is often called the parable of the sower. But really, the sower doesn't really have a major role in the story. It's just like, he's just getting the seed out. And what Jesus does is analyze the four soils. It's really the parable of the four soils and how people are responding to Jesus. And the receptivity of the soils to the seed of God's word is the focus. And so Jesus gives this teaching, it's both an exhortation, hey, you need to pay attention to this and do this, and a warning, this is what can get in the way of you responding to God's word and the consequences of it. And the theme of for each of us this morning is, what am I doing with what God says? When you're listening this morning, um, hopefully what I'm saying is something from God, and so what are you doing with what I'm saying? What do you, when you read your Bible on your own, what are you doing with what God is saying? And if you feel the Spirit saying something to you, uh, what are you doing with that? With what God is saying? How do you typically respond? Uh, the word "hear" is used nine times in this passage, telling us that the theme and folks is about hearing and responding to God's word. And it's not so much about whether we hear it in the sense that you know, sound waves enter, or you know, we're reading it. If you're reading it out loud, that we're hearing it, or you're just reading it to yourself and you're you're hearing it. But it's what we do with what we've heard. What's the quality? of our hearing. How do we respond? Does it change us? Do we do anything different as a result of what we've read or what we've heard? Or does it go one in one ear and out the other? Or do we get excited about, oh, I just heard something and I'm excited about it, but then we don't follow through on it and it doesn't do anything in our lives. And on either side of Jesus' teaching, uh, Luke presents us with these groups of people who have responded to Jesus' Word to Jesus in their bookends. And the first bookend in verses 1 through 3 summarizes Jesus' ministry. It says, you know, Jesus is going throughout these towns and cities, and he's both proclaiming and bringing uh, the good news of the kingdom of God. And so on the one side, he, there's words. He's proclaiming it. The kingdom of God is here, it's coming. And then also, he's bringing it. So he's demonstrating with his deeds. There's words and deeds to what Jesus is doing. And he's proclaiming and bringing that it, and we summarize this in our mission statement of showing and telling. He's both uh, bringing it and he's proclaiming it, showing and telling it, and it's he's telling people and showing people what does it look like when God is king, the kingdom of God that means it's God's kingdom. What does it look like when God's rule and reign break into and invade our world, our lives, our community, our town? And Luke also lists uh, who is accompanying Jesus in those first three verses on this. Kingdom mission. The twelve apostles are with him. He named them apostles back in chapter six. He called them up to himself, said, These twelve, I'm pointing you as my official representatives uh, and authoritative witnesses. And then it says there's also these women following him, and there's three named specifically Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And Luke is the only Gospel writer to name women this early. All the Gospels have women uh, later, like at the foot of the cross while Jesus is dying, or going and visiting the tomb, or being the first ones to witness his resurrection. But Luke names them very early. And uh, Mary Magdalene, in fact, is named here. And she's named as a witness to uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. She goes and sees where he's buried in his tomb. And she's the first person to see him alive after he's resurrected. And many of these women start following Jesus in Galilee, and then when Jesus makes his final trip up to Jerusalem, they come from Galilee to Jerusalem and follow him there and keep following him. And so including women in such a prominent position like this is uh, actually uh, unheard of. It was very unique in that world. And in fact, in the Jewish culture, a lot of people will talk about this, how women weren't seen as reliable witnesses. And you see this in Luke, that the women come and say, Jesus doesn't... Alive, and they think it's an idle tale. Like, ah, eh, like you can't be alive. And so, including them like this shows kind of the historical reliability of this. Like, we're going to put women in here because they were there. We're not going to scream them out and say, you know, we're going to b- polish this up for people in the culture to accept it easy, more easily. And they're put in this position of both as followers and as witnesses. And they're primary characters. And Luke specifically names three of them, but says there's a whole bunch of other ones that had, been, uh, had demons cast out of them or had healed of infirmities. And Mary Magdalene, it says, had seven demons cast out of her. And Jesus' ministry of release and restoration had touched their lives. He made a difference in their lives. And now they've given their life to him. And it says he, they're supporting his mission um, out of their own means. Like these are, So some of these women had money. And so this is an example of rich people responding humbly to Jesus, that it's uh, people who are poor in spirit and they are in gratitude funding this mission and following Jesus. And we see the twelve apostles have a wide variety of backgrounds. We saw that in chapter six. Like there's different occupations, different political leanings, and, but they're all following Jesus. And these women also have different backgrounds. I mean, there's Mary Magdalene, who has seven demons, and then there's um, uh, Joanna, who's the wife of this uh, official in the government, and we're not told much more about Susanna, but they have different backgrounds. It doesn't matter your gender or your background. What matters is responding to Jesus and saying, "I'm going to commit to Him in faith and obedience and devotion." And we see that they're all with Him. Being with Jesus is the essence of discipleship. That if we are disciples of Jesus, it's now if Jesus has given His Spirit, and now He is with us. When we're together, Jesus is. Uh, we're God's temple, Jesus is with us that's what it means to be a disciple is to be with Jesus and then the second book at the end of it also emphasizes responding to Jesus in verses 19-21 through Jesus is teaching, he's continuing to teach in this house but there's this big crowd and his mother and brothers come and they want to see him and somebody says, hey your mother and brothers are here and Jesus takes the opportunity to teach people a lesson he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it and Jesus isn't rejecting uh, his, the family he grew up with, but he's showing us where our priorities should be. Our primary, primary family is other people who have heard God's word and do it. Our primary family is other followers of Jesus. And you'll have parents, siblings, and other relatives who hear God's word and don't do it. And Jesus is saying that you are less of a family with them than you are with other people who are obeying God's word who are following Jesus those who don't obey God's word may even reject you for doing so you may have family members who are like you know they're just kind of you know super religious or they take God a little too seriously and they kind of don't agree with your lifestyle choices or the things that you do and they may ridicule you make fun of make fun of you and some of you have perhaps live this rea- with this reality where you found your church family a place of comfort Insecurity because your uh, family you grew up with isn't accepting your beliefs and they're not walking in the same way that you're walking. And often, we can treat our church family as kind of our less real family. Like, you know, I have my church family, but, you know, that's a little less real than our family we grew up with. And we can treat our church family as optional. We can see our church uh, family as a family we are somehow less committed to and less responsible to than the family we grew up with. And we may say something like, "You know, I need to do what's best for my family." And in those instances, usually we're putting um, either our spouse, or kids, or family we grew up with above our church family. I need to do what's best for my family, rather than saying, "You know, I need to do what's best for my church family." That God says we are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus says here, "My mothers and my my mother and my brothers are other people who hear the word of God and do it." We put a prior, the Bible. Uh, certainly doesn't tell us to neglect our spouse or our kids or our family we grew up with. But Jesus is clear where our, prior- our priority should be if those things come in conflict with each other. And so, you know, think to yourself, do you see the person sitting next to you, even if you're married, the person sitting next to you as your brother or sister in Christ? Do you see them that they are really your brother or sister? It's like, oh, you know, that's just something nice we say. But do you actually see them as your brother or sister You have the same heavenly fathers then. That's why we're brothers and sisters in Christ, because we have the same fathers. Like God is our Father. That makes us a family with brothers and sisters. That's what makes us family. So do you see other believers as your mother or father in Christ? The Apostle Paul said he was a father to Timothy, even though they weren't related biologically. So where do you see your primary place of belonging? Who is your family? Where do you feel most at home? Where do you feel you really belong? And Jesus Puts the priority on the family of God above any other family relations. And so when we see the church as our primary, primary family, it helps us obey God's word when it's difficult because, like, you know, I might not get the greatest response by obeying God in this situation, or my family might not understand me, but it's like, but I still have this community around me. This is my primary family. People are hearing the word of God and doing it. And so these two bookends of this passage are about the community of people responding in faith and obedience to what Jesus says. And so now look at the parable of the soils with those two bookends on either side of it. Uh, Jesus says, uh, Luke says, when a great crowd had gathered from various towns, uh, Jesus started teaching them. He taught them with parables. And we may think of parables kind of similar to a, a sermon illustration. Like if I said, you know, this is kind of, if I'm giving you an idea or a concept, and I'm like, you know, I'm gonna. it's kind of like this, and I give you a little story or a little um, object lesson from life or something that is kind of making that idea or concept more clear. That, that's not what a parable is. Uh, the word parable comes from two Greek words, um, para, which means uh, next to, and bala, which means to set, throw, or cast, or put. And so when they're combined with the word parable, it means something that's set or put next to or alongside something else. That's what a parable is. It's a saying, teaching, or story that is put alongside something else. And in Jesus' parables, he is setting a a saying, a teaching, or a story alongside his mission to proclaim and bring the kingdom of God. Jesus sets parables alongside what he's doing and what is happening. It's saying, this is what's actually... Have you seen what's going on here? Now let me tell you a parable that helps interpret and explain what is happening there. It's not like you know, okay, you guys, don't need to teach you about the Trinity. You know, and there's a whole bunch of really bad illustrations of that, of what the Trinity is. But, you know, the Trinity is kind of like a three-leaf clover. You know, it's one clover, but three things. It's like, that's an illustration. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not trying to explain, uh, like, theological idea. He's trying to explain, this is what I'm doing, and this is what's happening, and this parable is used to interpret and explain what is going on around us. And this, In this case, Jesus sets the story of the four soils alongside how people are responding to the kingdom of God that He's proclaiming and bringing, and certain elements of the parable correspond to reality. They're, they're symbolic, but not every element is symbolic. It's not like, well, you know, what are the what are the birds? Or you know, what is this? You know, I guess the birds are actually the image for the devil. But it's like not every single element is uh, symbolic of something. It's just whichever elements are uh, become important and they correspond to reality. And so we see in this parable, that the seed corresponds to God's word. Word of God, and the four soils correspond to people, and their are different responses to that word. And so this parallel is explaining the different responses to Jesus. And if you're one of the people in the first century reading this, I mean, Luke said, "I want to write this that you may have certainty about what you've been taught." Um, it's like, why didn't more people respond to what Jesus was saying? Like we feel it burning in our hearts. Like this seems so feels so real to us. Are we off base here that we have responded to and are following Jesus, but we have all these other people who aren't? And something like this is like, you know, this is explaining why people are responding in different ways. Why some people rejected it. Why some people hate you. Why some people started off well, but then fell away. And Jesus is explaining what's happening in reality. And the disciples, they don't get the parallel at first. And they ask Jesus what it means. And he says something which may sound a bit strange at first. In verse 10 he says, "'To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables.'" So that seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. So is Jesus trying to keep the kingdom of God a secret? Is he trying to to only kind of whisper in certain people's ears and for certain people to um, get in the in crowd? Well, it doesn't make any sense with what we've seen in verse 1 and what we've seen throughout his ministry. He says he's going through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So he's not trying to keep the kingdom of God a secret. And the word secrets is the Greek word, which sounds like our English word, mystery, but it doesn't mean, uh, when, it talk, when the Bible talks about the mystery of the kingdom of God or things like that, it isn't talking about, oh, this is like a conundrum we just can't solve, or it's like a puzzle or a like, riddle we can't understand. It's just kind of a mystery how that works. You know, when people sometimes say, like, you know, they work in mysterious ways. It's like, you know, it, it's not something that's like, this is kind of weird, we just can't figure out, it's a mystery. But it, it's talking about something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. Mystery in the Bible is something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. So, what was hidden about the kingdom of God that is now being revealed by and through Jesus? Well, many people thought, we've talked about before, how people thought the kingdom of God was going to come in power and in glory. That the Messiah was going to come, he's going to boot out the Roman Empire, boot out any of the nations that are. Uh, Oppressing them at that time It's going to be power and glory He's going to set up the the throne of David He's going to reign from Jerusalem And Israel will once again be uh, the place Where Israel is in control of it Uh, The the Jewish people are in control of it But Jesus knows That he will first suffer And then enter his glory And that the actual way he's setting up his kingdom Is not, I'm going to boot out all the Romans He's actually defeating a much deeper enemy uh, Our spiritual enemy, Satan and sin that holds us captive, and Jesus is coming, and he knows that that's how his kingdom is going to come, is through his death on the cross, that the crown of being the Messiah comes with the cross, it's suffering, and then glory, Jesus knows he's going to first die, and then be resurrected, and be seated on the throne, and he says to his disciples in Luke 24, because they all think, well, Jesus died, and we thought, we had hoped he was the one we'd been waiting for, and then Jesus explains to them, no, how, why aren't you seeing the whole Old Testament? This is the pattern of the Old Testament. Suffering, then glory. The Messiah would come, and he would suffer, and then there would be the kingdom of glory. And those who have ears to hear and eyes to see can see that the kingdom of God is coming through Jesus, even if it's not the way they expected or the way many people were interpreting it to come And Jesus here quotes from Isaiah 6 where the prophet is given this mission from God. Like, you want to go speak to the people, but they're not going to really respond to what you're saying. It's not going to lead to faith and obedience. Instead, people are going to remain dull and deaf and blind and unresponsive. They're not going to turn to God. And when Jesus was just a baby, his parents brought him up to the temple. We saw this in uh, Luke chapter 2. His parents bring him to the temple. A man named Simeon told Jesus' mom, not everyone's going to receive your son. Some are going to fall because of him and some are going to oppose him. And he predicted Jesus' suffering that is going to pierce Mary's heart what happens to Jesus. And through Jesus, God's once hidden plan is now revealed. And to some, Jesus isn't fulfilling expectations. Like, what? This isn't how I thought it would happen. But to those who have ears to hear, they're nodding their heads as Jesus speaks. It's like he's talking. They're like, yeah, I get it. They're tracking with Jesus. They're nodding their heads in agreement. They're understanding and seeing What Jesus is saying about the kingdom, what it looks like. They see Jesus as the one bringing it. And for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, the signs of the kingdom are there, even if it's different than expected. So Jesus speaks in parables uh, in a way, it becomes a way to test the soil of people's hearts. Parables both conceal and reveal. It's not saying things, you know, quite... up front as you want, because the parable, let me tell this parable of these soils, and then the disciples are like, we want to know more, and Jesus explains it to them in the hearing of the rest of the crowd, but it's like, those people that are pushing in and wanting to hear more, and trying to figure out what's going on here, they, it, it, that, that's what the parable does, it puts responsibility on the hearer to understand, to go deeper and apply the meaning, and many heard what Jesus is saying, said, but he, they won't and don't grasp the significance, and thus they miss the implications. You know, it's one thing to read the Bible. And there's tons of non-believing Bible scholars that read the Bible, but the significance of it is lost on them. They don't feel it in their heart. They don't get what it's saying. It's like they are looking at it as a, uh, not as a word from God, and Jesus is talking about how people are responding to him. And so the question is, do you have ears to hear and eyes to see what God is doing? Many in Jesus' day said they wanted the kingdom of God. But they, what they really wanted was their own kingdom, their own version of it. Because when the kingdom of God came, they rejected it or missed it. They wanted their own personal version of the kingdom. And John the Baptist was struggling with this in chapter 7. That he thought Jesus was the Messiah, the king who was going to come and set up God's kingdom. But now he's sitting in prison wondering... Uh, Jesus are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else and what he thought the kingdom of God would be and what his situation experiences doesn't go together like I thought the kingdom of God was this that the Messiah is going to come and all these corrupt leaders are going to get booted out including Herod but now I'm sitting in prison for preaching God's word under Herod and nothing's happening Jesus why am I still in prison I was preaching God's word preparing the way of the Lord but now I'm still stuck here and we often miss what Jesus is doing in our lives and around us because we want Him to give us our kingdom and not His. And we can consider what do your prayers sound like? What do you ask for? What's the kingdom that you're asking Jesus to build in your life and around you? Is it His or is it yours? And the Lord's Prayer is a great prayer to pray. It reminds us of who God is and who we are. Our Father I'm in Heaven. am He's my Father. I am his child. Uh, and then we pray, hallowed be your name. I want your glory and your name to be what's known. And then your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it, is as, as it is in heaven. It's about his kingdom and his will, not asking him to do our will and build our life into what we want it to be. And so Jesus groups people's responses to him into four types of soil. And in doing so, he tells us the greatest obstacles and threats to following him. And if, you were, you know, if I was to say, hey, I want you to quickly write down what are the greatest threats to your faith? What are the greatest obstacles to you walking with Jesus tomorrow and next week and the rest of your life? What do you think is going to get in the way of that? What are the greatest enemies against your obedience to God's word? What are the big, biggest barriers to salvation for people to come to saving faith? Well, Jesus tells us here what those barriers and obstacles and threats are to our faith. And so the first type of soil has a hard heart. The word doesn't penetrate it at all. The seed of the word falls on hard ground and Satan takes it away before it does anything. And in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the result of this hard heart that doesn't see the the gospel or the glory of Christ in the gospel is that uh, Jesus says that they do not believe and thus aren't saved. And Satan's tactics of lies and temptation blind us from even wanting God's rule and reign in our life. And So that's the first enemy. The second type of soil hears the word of God and initially receives it with joy, but then when the time of testing comes, they fall away. And time of testing refers to opposition to our faith, or hostility to our faith, of people um, rejecting us or what we believe. would be called persecution, the most extreme form. And it means the person believed until it became hard to believe because of our pressure. It's like they were believing when it was easy and sounding good, maybe when they're with all the other people excited about Jesus, but then, when they got away from that, it became harder to believe because now, oh, in my workplace, with my neighbors, with my family, they're not liking what I'm believing or they're not liking what I stand for. And you know, some of the hot topics today are um, Christianity's sexual ethics are uh, very much opposed, and you could be called you know, a bigot or a hater if you hold to the Bible's view of sexuality. And so, this person has shallow and superficial faith. They, hear the re- they fear the rejection, hostility, and opposition of the world. And Jesus says they have no root. It, it's shallow soil. And the barrier to following Jesus for this soil is what others think or what others will do in response to them following Jesus. And if you're feeling like, I, in my mind, these soils are about a pattern, a lifelong pattern. So it's not like, you know, today I was the second soil, You know, tomorrow I'm the fourth soil. You know, the next day I'm the third soil. These are describing a lifelong pattern of like this person never gets saved. This person just cares about the things of the world. But this person is the good soil. It's about a lifelong trajectory and pattern. But I think we also can say, okay, I'm, I am following Jesus. But I know I get tripped up at times. What are the things that trip us up? It's these two things. First, it's the uh, people opposing our faith, and second, it's the cares of the world. And so we can ask ourselves. uh, Do I care more about having the world's acceptance than God's? Do I fear other people's rejection, ridicule, or criticism more than fearing God? And perhaps we don't do what God says in order to belong, to be liked, to be accepted, or be respected. Instead of holding on to what God says, we're holding on to what other people say about us, or what other people think about us, or what other people will do. And we don't want to bear the consequences from the world for following Jesus. Jesus and John... 15, 16 says, the world is going to hate you because they've hated me. So if you love me, the world will hate you. And are we going to keep our faith kind of closed in so nobody knows about it, so that the world will love us? Or will we let it be seen by the way we live and what we talk about? The third type of soil hears the word of God, but then faith is choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. This again is a response that doesn't last. The the pursuit of the things of this world becomes a higher priority than God. But there, these are weeds that choke out a response to God's word. And if you are this soil, or have t- times where you struggle with this, your barrier to following Jesus in that moment, or on that day, or whenever it is, is what this world offers you you get more wrapped up with money and things than following God. It's like, well, I've got to take care of my house. I've got to take care of my car. Oh I'd like to get a better car. Oh, I've got bills I need to pay, and I've got uh, my yard I need to maintain. And it's like, well, I've got this stuff in my job, and like, ooh, I'm hoping to get, you know, be able to save money to do this or have retirement. And those, the cares of the world and the interest in the riches and the pleasures of life uh, take us off course. And it's not that you know, money is bad, But the Bible clearly says the love of money. You can't have two masters. Or the love of stuff, of getting things, having nice things, or whatever things of the world that we're trying to pursue. And Jesus, uh, there's a reason he warns about money so much. and says it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's because, well, they've got all this stuff they're worrying about and seeking. And someone who doesn't have money has already realized, I'm very needy and I'm very messed up, and so I need God. But riches and the things of the world uh, distract us. And we may chase those things, pursue them, prioritize them, value them, desire them. And most of those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But it's when we love it, or chase it, or pursue it, or desire it, or prioritize it above God, above doing what God says. Like you know, I want to be generous. I know He says to be generous, but I'm going to keep this for myself. Or or, you know, whether it's our time or our money or whatever it is, with those those cares, choke out God's word. Let the pursuit of money and pleasure and things. push the pursuit of God and his kingdom out of our lives. And lastly, the fourth type of soil. Here is the word of God that holds it fast in their heart and bears fruit with patience and endurance. This is good soil. This is a heart that is soft and responsive to God's word. They do not fall away when opposition comes, but endure it. They don't let the cares, riches, and pleasures of this life choke out their faith. And so there's four types of soils: one that responds to God's word rightly. And this isn't to say that, okay, uh, one quarter of pe- only one quarter of people will respond to you know, God's word. It's not making like you know uh, 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 proportions like that. But that's because that's not the point. The point is about why people are responding differently. How do we explain why, you know, we respond to the gospel, but this other person I've told the gospel, or my family members, or friends. They aren't responding to it. Why aren't they? As a farmer sows, he sows the same seed everywhere, but not all of it comes up. So my my summary for a big idea for this passage is this. Align what you do with what God says. Align what you do with what God says. The good soil people don't just say, I believe what God says. It's more than agreeing with facts. They act in accordance with what they have heard. Verse 21, it says, They hear the word of God and do it. We align what we do with what God says. And as I said in the beginning, this parable both both exhorts us and warns us. First, it warns us about what can get in the way of aligning uh, our lives with what God says and the consequences of not doing so. And Jesus says this proverb in verse 16 about how no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bed or under a jar or something like that, uh, but they put it out so it may give light. And the point is, he says that everything secret and hidden will one day be revealed. It will come out into the light. It will be made known. And then he gives a warning in verse 18, saying, "'Take care then how you hear, "'for the one, to the one who has, more will be given, "'and from the one who has not, "'even when he thinks that he has, "'will be taken away.'" The basic point is that what someone has aligned themselves with will eventually be brought to light. And those who have aligned themselves with God's Word will receive more. But those who have aligned themselves with the world, desiring the world's good opinions, the world's stuff, will have even that taken away. Like, I've aligned myself with the world, and I've got people's opinions, I've got the world's stuff. But even that is going to be taken away. What they think they have will be taken away from them. This parable also exhorts us to take our response to God's word seriously. Jesus is pushing us toward self-reflection and self-examination. What am I doing with what God says? Am I aligning what I do with what he says? Or am I aligning what I do with something else? We need to align what we do with what what God says. And we may ask, okay, well, what does God say? And I think it's much broader than just commands. What Jesus is doing here is he's... What's he proclaiming He's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom and so in summary what what is Jesus sowing? he's sowing the gospel and so we bring our life in alignment with what the gospel says, what God says in the gospel and so we can you can align what you do with what God says is true now, specifically what he says is true about himself, what he says is true about us. you can align what you do with what God says he will do I'm going to align how I think about my future with the promises God has given me. I'm not going to live as if Um, God's not going to be there for me in the future I'm going to align what I do with what God says he's going to do we can also align what we do with what God says to do and that would be the commands. but there's the gospel and there's our uh, obedience to Jesus and a response to the gospel and so we can Jesus is sowing the gospel that's what we need to align our lives with and difficulty in in aligning what we do with God what God says is not a modern problem It's a very ancient problem. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, they had a a tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that tree, God said, don't eat from that or you will die. And that tree, every day, reminded them who's in charge here. God is. He has the knowledge of good and evil. He tells us what good and evil is. He tells us what's good and what's bad. And it also says this is the consequences of not wanting God to be in charge. But the serpent comes, Satan in the form of a serpent, comes and talks to him and says, You know what, God's word—it's not really going to. Isn't he kind of holding out on you? Can you really trust him? Like you're not actually going to die, like he said. So they had a choice: Am I going to align what I do with what God has said, or am I aligning what I do with what this serpent is saying? And they decided we don't want God in charge, and that's expressed by not by doing what God said not to do. They align themselves with something else. Israel, too, was called to obey God's word. They are given the Ten Commandments. They are given this covenant in Mount Sinai through Moses. And it's supposed to be, we are going to be a light to the nations. We're going to be God's royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, that we're showing the world what it looks like to live for God. This is God's kingdom on earth. But they also fell out of alignment with what God said. And the prophets came, and you can think of prophets, their whole desire and job is, we want to bring God's people back into alignment with God's Word. You guys, you're, we're, you're off base here. You're out of alignment. Like This is what we're supposed to be doing, get back into alignment with God. But Israel didn't listen. Then we come to Jesus. Jesus was always aligned with what God said. In fact, uh, John chapter 1 says, uh, the word, He is the Word of God. That, and then John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God's Word who became flesh. Jesus is the embodiment of God's word. If we want to know uh, what God says is true about himself, not only about himself, but about humanity, because Jesus is fully God, fully man, perfectly, we look to Jesus, the word of God. If we want to know what God says he will do, what his promises are, but if we can believe them, we can look at Jesus, because he is the word of God in human form. If we want to know uh, what we should do, we can look to Jesus. Because Jesus perfectly uh, lived what a human in obedience to God um, should live like. He's God's Word in human form. And so, what does it look like to align our life with what God says? Look at Jesus. Jesus is God's Word in the flesh, God's commands, God's promises, God's revelation of Himself. And the written Word uh, in our Bibles reveals what God is like. And the living Word also reveals what God is like in human form. And so ultimately, we're aligning ourselves with Jesus. Align what you do with what God says. Well, God's word is Jesus, that we're aligning ourselves with him. And so think back to the soils. What are you most concerned about in life? Are you most concerned with what others think of you? Are you most concerned with how much you have? Or are you most concerned with doing what God says and so some scenarios does God come into the picture when you make decisions about money does God come into the picture when you make decisions about time does God come into the picture when you think about the future does God come into the picture uh, in how you treat people Are you in all those situations are you aligning yourself with what God says when money decisions, time decisions future decisions, how you're treating people or are you aligning with something else Are your behaviors in these areas aligned with what God says? What determines your action? Is it the opinions of others? Is it the pursuit of worldly cares, riches, and pleasures? The only way to live in alignment with reality, with what's true, is to align ourselves with what God says. Otherwise, we're living a lie. And Jesus, in this passage, shows, well, how do you know if you're a child of God? What does it mean to be part of his family? It's if you do what the Father says. How do you know if you're a part of Jesus' kingdom? It's if you do what the king says. And as I said before, this isn't about, like, okay, I've got to be perfect. Like, every single thing in my life is aligned with what God says. But it's about the pattern of our lives. Is our pattern one of making the effort to align what we do with what God says? Or is our pattern more aligning ourselves with what people think of us and what we have or want to have? And the thing is, we all fall short. None of us perfectly aligns ourselves with what God says says. We're all failing at this at some level. And, and sin is both doing what God says not to do and not doing what God says to do. The sins of commission, doing what God says not to do, and omission, not doing what God says we should do. And there's no way we do this perfectly. And the good news is that Jesus, the Word of God, became flesh and He died in our, in our place so we can be forgiven. And one of the major points that God makes in his word is that all of us sin and fall short of aligning ourselves with what God says, and we need forgiveness. Forgiveness. God's word doesn't only say, this is what you need to do, but it says, this is what God has done and will do and is doing in your life. And so we align ourselves with that. God takes care of our sin problem. Jesus shows us God's plan and promise for us that all who turn to him will be washed clean of their sin. God's word all points to the good news about Jesus Christ. And the main point of this passage isn't about uh, sharing our faith, evangelism. He's talking about what's our response to God's word. But as we just think about, okay, well, if I have God's word, therefore I'm a sower and I'm sowing the seed of that word in my life, Um, what is the sower responsible for? You only have one responsibility, which is to sow the seed. And they don't have responsibility for the soils and the quality of the soil, the type of soil, or how someone's going to listen. The seed will do its work if it lands on the right soil, on the good soil. And so when it comes to us talking to others about Jesus, our responsibility is just to sow the seed and to see what happens, what God does. And often we think, oh, we kind of try to judge the soils, like we only want to sow it on good soil, like I need to wait till the right time, or this person isn't really interested, or this is... Uh, they aren't really into the religious stuff, or they don't want to hear it, or we're afraid of how they react. We like try to test out the soil without ever sowing the seed. It's like, oh, I want to see if the soil is good first before I I risk putting some seed in there. But the sower is just supposed to spread it and leave the results to God. See what happens. We just need to spread the gospel. And this is you know, true for me. It's like, okay, how do I um, wait till I think this is the perfect right time and I should bring up God now or whatever? And it's like, well. We just are supposed to make it a part of our life. I mean, Jesus uses the image of light. Like, okay, what's shining out of us? Are we just kind of letting God's word be sown about? And it's like, well, I'm going to see how people respond, and you know, it's, I'm not going to stop loving them if they don't respond rightly. But we kind of put all this pressure on. I need to keep working to see if the right soil, and then sow the seed. And if they don't like it, we're never going to be friends again. And it's like, well, no, we just are in relationship with people, and we sow it as we go in closing as you as we think about ourselves as a church God's word is part of our name we are good news church good news is just what gospel means we're a family and community formed by the gospel by Jesus' words and that's what's at the center it's what brings us together as we saw in this people of different backgrounds and genders and former occupations and the you know the gravity and intensity of their sin all come together and align themselves with what God says. What defines us? It's what shapes us. It's what transforms us. It's what determines how we live as individuals as a church it determines what we are doing. Good, you could say. I don't know if you could say uh, God's word is our first name. You know, good news church. I don't know if that really works, but the good news is what's at the center. Um, up here. But, you know, our our logo, it's like, okay, Jesus, that crown at the center of the gospel is the good news of uh, God's kingdom. And Jesus as the king of that. Let's pray. God, you give us your word, both in the Bible and in Christ. And now that word has come to live in us, that you've given us your spirit, you've written your word on our hearts. And Lord, would you Let us align all that we do, all we think, all that we say with what you say is true about yourself, about us, about the future, and about what we should do. In your sins' name we pray. Amen.